Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Shoddy. Coming up on today's podcast, it's a Friday. So we've got a lovely chat with actual national treasure, Giles Brandreth. He, as a young boy, wanted to be on the stage. Then he wanted to be on the... He wanted to be... <clears throat> as a young boy, he wanted to be on the stage. Then he wanted to be Prime Minister. Didn't quite make that, but he did become a Conservative MP. He was a government whip. Lost his seat in 97. And more recently, he's been trying to raise the morale of Boris Johnson's troops at Tory party dinners. So we'll hear about all of that and his new podcast with the Duchess of Cornwall. Anyway, that's coming up in just a moment. We'll do the columnist as well. Melanie Reed and James Forsyth are coming up. But first, as ever, on a Friday, let's take a look at what we learned this week. We learned that the government has a new food strategy to stop crops going to waste. Boris Johnson is going to go and pick them all personally. It'll make a nice change. The one thing we try to pull is some courgettes. He also got behind the wheel on the farm. Yeah, the last time a Tory MP had a go on a tractor, they had to resign. We learned that the government has a new cost of living czar. David Buttress is the founder of Just Eat. It took no time at all for tweets to emerge where he backs Welsh independence, condemns the Tories and says the Prime Minister lacks intelligence or integrity. If somebody say just resign. We learned that Pretty Patel takes her inspiration from EasyJet. The planned flight to Rwanda was cancelled the last minute and now might not take off for months. Talking of people struggling to achieve a liftoff, we learned that Keir Starmer's got a new joke book. On Monday's show, the Labour leader got it in the neck from his own shadow cabinet. Is he exciting? No, of course not. That isn't why we ended up with him. But there's a big difference between not being Mr Razzmatazz and boring everyone to death. To prove that actually he isn't boring, but it's Mr Fun Fun Fun, he brought us some bang-up-to-date 1970s Star Wars jokes. These aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> uh, we learned the only way is ethics. Uh, Lord Gite resigned on Wednesday. Not about Partygate or Waterpapergate, but no, Gitegate was triggered by something to do with steel, which it turns out he does have a bit of. And finally, we learned that the House of Lords are really not happy about being sent to Stoke and think MPs should move too. Source for the ermine goose is surely source for the plebeian gander. But as temperatures rise and politics fails, it's our goose that's well and truly cooked. So that's what we learned this week. Now it's time for this. That's what we learned this week. Now it's time for this. The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reed on Times Radio. This. The Columnists with Formel, James Forsyth and Melanie Reed on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the morning. We speak to two of our favourite columnists. Morning, James Forsyth. Morning, Matt. And morning, Melanie Reed. Morning, Matt. Nice to have you both here. Um, we're all very hot in uh, in London, Melanie. What's it like with you in Scotland? It's absolutely glorious. It's sixteen degrees. It's sixteen degrees, and it's pouring with rain. And somebody's phone is saying, "Melanie, you're on somebody's... the radio. <laughs> you're on the sure. radio." 
<laughs> I tell you what, let's speak Sorry. to James. We'll speak to James. Um, James, uh, let's talk about your column today. A really yeah. interesting uh, topic of just just to choose as someone who's constantly trying to work out. Oh, I'm going to do another column about how the government's a bit rubbish. This is a, so um, you've you've written about the the extent to which the the state, the security services, the government, the police are getting to grips with. Uh, Islamism and the threat posed by Islamic extremists, and the and I'm, last year was it last year I interviewed the head of MI5. Uh, they were talking about the rising concern about um, uh, the threat posed by the far right. But your piece says that actually that's that's slightly diverting attention from from what you you think is the real the real problem. I think at the moment Islamism is is the greater threat uh, to the UK. Uh, I think you've got to understand that the Islamist extremism and the far right they they feed off each other. So, so the worse one gets, the worse the other gets. So you, you do have to deal with both of them. But I think we have a problem, which is, as a society, we are less good at identifying the markers of, of Islamist extremism than we are about what constitutes the far right. We, we, we struggle, I think, to distinguish between Islamist extremism and just conservative religious practice. And I think we don't feel culturally confident making that those distinctions. I mean, that is a particular problem because prevent essentially relies on people in the public sector, the voluntary sector, um, referring people to it. So people saying to the police, look, we're a bit worried about this kid. You know, we think he's been coming out with, or he or she's been coming out with, with some ideas that concern us, some, some reading material that concerns us, online habits that concern us. And I think while as we are much more confident, you know, identifying people who might be susceptible to, uh, to, to, to going to the far right, we are less good at, at doing that with people um, with Islamist extremism. It is interesting to some extent, and you, you touched on this because of understandable sensitivities about race and religion, um, which just don't apply if you're bluntly pointing your finger at a, a white middle aged man who might be showing signs of being a far right enthusiast. Um, but your 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 point is that actually we're being oversensitive. The people who need to be across this stuff are being oversensitive and therefore not tackling it sooner. Yeah. No, I, I, there's clearly a clear mismatch. Less than a quarter of the referrals for event at the moment, at the moment are about Islamism. But three quarters, or so almost three quarters, just under three quarters, of people in prison in custody for terrorism offences uh, are Islamists. And I think that, 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 that suggests to me that you're not matching up the referrals with the, with the actual threat. And actually, actually, I was going to say, because I think when we spoke to uh, Kevin, Ken McCallum, the head of MI5, he, I think he said that the, the, the proportions were a bit more like the latter, that about, a, I think he said a quarter, maybe a bit less than that, a fifth of the, of the, the incidents in the reports and the cases that they were dealing with uh, were far-right extremism, uh, which had gone up a lot, and that was a concern, but still the bulk of the of uh, the work in cases that they were looking at were were Islamist, still Islamist extremism. Many, I thought what was interesting about the, James's column is quite often we don't have the, the only time we normally have these conversations is unfortunately after a successful attack. Yeah, and I thought I thought it was it was it, it's a very interesting issue to re, to, to raise right now, and I think it, it, it because it, it's so nuanced um, and so important to tackle. I mean, I, it does reflect Rotherham. And the whole, the whole issue that has built with that, and how we have, we we have this sort of imbalance. We have, we have uh, kind of the thug, thugs versus misled victims, and there are lots and lots of well-respected bodies there to support the misled victims, uh, and of course, the, you know, to 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 make the political case on on uh, in in their defence, but they're they're. There aren't there aren't uh, the same people to to protect right wing thugs, and so it's very easy to kick them, and um, we do what's easiest culturally. Um, we don't do we don't do the hard stuff, and if Rotherham has taught us any lessons, it's that we have to unpick with great delicacy, and with sensitivity, um, because it we have to unpick these things and to tackle to tackle the bodies that sometimes are advising us. Uh, advising a public policy that are not perhaps as as um, neutral, they're far more partisan than than they should be.
And the, the, the Rotherham, of course, was where uh, groups of Asian men were exploiting, uh, sexually abusing uh, children and uh, young girls in in Rotherham. And sensitivities meant that for a long time that just wasn't uh, wasn't being dealt with. James, the other thing that really struck me reading your column, talking about Prevent, which is the, the this scheme which is designed to try and sort of catch these things, you know, stop it before it starts... This struck me that, that Prevent was started by Tony Blair. And you, I just sort of wonder why, given the Prime Ministers and Home Secretaries of all colours love to relaunch their own things and replace a thing with another thing, the, the way that that's... There probably aren't many massive flagship policies which have survived in name, if not exactly in form, for such a long time. Is that because no one can come up with a better idea? Or is it because it's sort of working? I think it is sadly more of the former than the latter. I also think it's partly because because it's an inherited scheme, there's kind of political cover. If you tried to reinvent the wheel, um, it, 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 it would be very difficult to do because you know you, you would run into precisely the kind of problems that Melanie um, was talking about. And so I think people want to stick with the existing programme. I think one of the other things we need to be careful about is we as a society find it much easier to ignore the ideological underpinnings of these things. It's much easier to say, ah, the person who did this act had mental health problems or this or that. But that, I think, ignores the fact that the danger is when those mental health problems combine with the ideology. And we've got to be more uh, more prepared to look at what is motivating people? Um, you know, there's, there's an analysis circulating in Whitehall of why people went to Syria to join the Islamic State, uh, and it's and it downplays the role of religion as a factor, which seems to me slightly bizarre. When these people, were, one of the reasons they were going, was clearly to live under a caliphate, and I think that 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 shows that people don't want to look at the ideology. And if you don't look at the ideology, you're never going to be able to deal with the problem. Yeah, well, it's a it's a interesting. Uh, it's, I just thought it was a really interesting topic and one that we probably don't uh, don't talk about um, uh, enough. And, but I think but I think there is a real problem though, because because we only talk about it after successful yeah. attacks, that really limits the conversation you can have yeah. because no one wants to inflame a situation at that point. And so and so we never get to, so you know only if we talk, only if you talk about it in a period of calm. You know, because I think that, you know, after an attack, everyone wants to, understandably, everyone wants to come together, everyone wants to cool things down. And I think that that is part of the problem. The, the, it's just, sorry, of the, part most... the problem is that we don't talk about it, except that, that, that yeah, those yeah, moments. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it remains one of the most difficult conversations we have in today's culture. That's why we don't talk about it in calm. Yes. And then, and then, and then everything, if it happens in the post, uh, a, a terrible, tragic incident, then, then, knee-jerk, overly aggressive, short-termist solutions the ones Precisely, that are reachful. Yeah. reachful. Yeah. Um, let's lighten the mood a little bit. Um, should uh, the House of Commons be moved to Stoke? Um, uh, Michael Gove suggested the House of Lords should be moved to Stoke on trend. And in the Lords uh, yesterday, uh, several peers were very cross about it. Uh, Lord Young uh, of Cookham, the former Conservative Cabinet Minister, argued that source for the ermined goose is surely source for the plebeian gander which uh in sort of parliamentary terms is absolutely savage um uh melody what do you think does should we move parliament I, out of london I, I well i think it will be it will be really amusing wouldn't it wouldn't it be great entertainment this i, I imagine a sort of creaking crocodile of elderly grandees you know lifting up their robes and the, and the, the moths the moths flying out and and getting on a train and sort of being able to, unable to deal with real life and, and the litter and people talking with, with, the, with these strange accents. I mean, I, I just think we really need to do it just for, just for entertainment. Uh, I, you know, it would sep- don't we have a real problem with numbers, uh, in that there are, are there not something like 800 plus of them? Oh, it's mad. Yeah. I mean, sorry, yeah, it's not so- mad. Some people might say it was mad. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, some was, I mean, so, so, so it would be a great way to separate the young, lively ones, like, like, like our, our honourable Ruth Davidson, um, our very own, uh, to separate the young, the young, the young, lively ones with the ones who, quite frankly, don't maybe have quite so much to contribute any longer. Surely not. Surely not. I mean, uh, James, what it does point to once again is behind the scenes is this ongoing, never-ending wrangle about. Uh, basically repairing the Houses of Parliament before they catch fire or 
or fall down, um, which is in part about moving the House of Lords out. Nobody wants to move out, but nobody wants it to fall down either. Yeah, and I, but I think this is really about Michael, Michael Gove with his kind of classic. He knows that the government needs something to symbolise levelling up. And so a row with the House of Lords about moving... Uh, uh, moving the House of Lords to a, to a place with three Tory MPs, all in relatively marginal seats, you know, is great for him because you know he gets to be opposing all of these people saying Stoke. I don't want to move to Stoke, um, <laughs> and, and, that, and that is that is absolutely um, perfect for for for, for Go's political positioning. I mean, you see this, I and mean, they they just want. You know, I think they are looking for some iconic row about trying to move some institution out of London as part of a kind of levelling up um, mission that will enable them to say, oh, look, we really are serious about levelling up. You've now got, you know, you've now got the, the, the Supreme Court in Barnsley. I, it's, it will never happen, but a little wistfully, it would be very colourful if it did. And actually, that's the problem, isn't it, James? Just um, the, the, the fact that it, Melanie's right, this won't happen. Uh, the fact that thousands of people are not going to be sent to Rwanda. Uh, the fact that um, uh, probably... Uh, you know, the fact that they're, they're now not even talking about tabling or, or making any attempt to pass this, this Northern Ireland Protocol legislation. It's all very well and good picking these wedge issues and picking a fight on them. But if none of these things happen at some point, don't the voters think uh, you're all mouth and no trousers? Yeah, I think on this flight to Rwanda, you know, yes, the government can benefit from having kind of row with the, what did the Daily Mail call them Euro judges. But um, if by the next election you haven't... Uh, there aren't a sizable number of people who've arrived in small boats and then been sent to Rwanda. People will just say, well, what was all that about? And the government will begin to look like it, it can't achieve stuff. I also think, though, that we, I suspect we are heading back to a uh, debate we had a lot in the 60s and 70s. There's this debate about moving the capital out of London. I mean, this is, this is if you look at levelling up, if you look at these regional inequalities, you know, the, 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 the temptation to think, right, um, London, London does all right for itself. Why don't we take the government and put it somewhere else? I think he's going to become greater and greater. James Forsyth and Melanie Reid there. And of course, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Of course, on Saturday, you can read my column as well. This week, it's Keir Starmer's Joke Book. Anyway, that's something to look forward to. Right, coming up, it's my chat with Giles Bannett. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Sometimes we have a guest on the show and I have to explain who they are or why we're talking to them. But this is a man who needs no introduction, partly because I listed all the things he'd ever done that would take up the entire amount of time we've got to, to have a chat. So I shall merely say I'm joined by Giles Brandreth. Giles, welcome to Times Radio. 
Can I say it's good to be back on Times Radio? I love yes. Times Radio. I love you, Matt. The last time we met, I think, was it the Cheltenham Literature Festival? It was at the Cheltenham Literature Festival. In a, you were about to go on stage and, and to a, in front of a delighted audience. Well, I went on stage anyway. There were a lot of people there. <laughs> And um, I would love you to tell my wife what I do, because she keeps saying, what are you doing? What are you doing now? Matt Chorley, Times Radio, on a day like this, weather like this, this is madness. <laughs> is anyone listening? You know? Yes, of course. It's too, it's too, everyone's staying indoors in the, or in air-conditioned cars and listening. That's what it's of course like. they are. So, we'll come on to the many, many projects and things that you've got on the go at the moment. But uh, let's go. What, what did you, as a child, as a young boy, a young Giles Brandreth, what did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be, when I was very small, my mother wanted to put me on the stage. But I wanted, from even an early age, I wanted to be Prime Minister. And there will be people listening to this who rather wish that I was Prime Minister. <laughs> As you know, I did give it a go. Back in the 1990s, I was a Member of Parliament for five years. Yes. Uh, as, as we say, those of us who have been rejected, I was a Member of Parliament until the people spoke <laughs> and then we say something rather rude about the people. But it was a fascinating time. So when I was a child, I think I was full of uh, ambition. I had lovely parents who, uh, I think, made me feel that I was the most special person in the world, and which was lovely, which is lovely. But it gives you a sense of entitlement that's quite dangerous, I discovered as the years went by. And I've been thinking about this only because during lockdown, I wrote a, a childhood memoir which comes out in, which is just out in paperback. And uh, it made me think about my family and my parents in a way I'd never done before, because my, my view of life was look up, look out. I'd written a biography of the Duke of Edinburgh, Philip the Final Portrait, and his line was, don't talk about yourself, nobody's interested. Uh, you know, look up, look out. That's the world out there. Don't be introspective. And I'm quite sympathetic to that. So when I sat down to write this childhood memoir... I thought it would be quite fun, you know, a trip down memory lane. And it was fun at times, but quite a lot of it was, was a bit difficult. And one of the things I, I, I realised that was my parents loving me so much and thinking and telling me I could do everything and anything, that I believed it. I mean, the first time I went for a swimming lesson and stepped out onto the water, to find that I sank was quite a shock to my system. I, 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 mean, I genuinely thought probably I could walk on water. Um, and my mother saw me as a kind of future Fred Astaire. Uh, and, of course, I've got feet like Fred Flintstone. I've been asked to be on Strictly, but I've said no, uh, because I know it would just be an embarrassment. Who wants to be out on week one? Too humiliating. Um, so I realised quite quickly as the years went by that I couldn't do everything or anything, but I've enjoyed trying to do lots of different things. And that's because I was sent away to a boarding school when I was seven or eight or nine. And I thought... At the time, briefly, I thought, oh, don't my parents like me? Why are they sending me to boarding school? I've since discovered from my sisters, I have three older sisters, that the reason I was sent away to boarding school was my parents couldn't stand the fact I wouldn't stop talking. And the family got together. My sisters said to my parents, look, we will chip in our pocket money to help pay for the school fees. We've got to have some peace around the place. So I was sent away to this boarding school in Kent. There was a marvellous headmaster called Mr Stocks. And when I was eight or nine, Mr. Stock said to me, Brandreth, remember, busy people are happy people. Five words. Busy people are happy people. And I think those five words that I was introduced to all those years ago by that head teacher have been, uh, well, the, the reason that I've led the, the sort of life I have led, being a busy person. Uh, my wife would say, busy fool. I say, busy people are happy people. So that's why I do lots of different things. And the advantage of that was... During lockdown, for example, when certain doors closed, uh, there were other doors that I could push open. So I, I wrote these, the book, the, the childhood memoir, Odd Boy Out, and I finished my biography of Prince Philip during lockdown because the stage show I was due to do then, I was about to open a stage show with Judy Dench that actually opens this Sunday, uh, on this very Sunday, the, uh, and runs on till the 3rd of July, but it's all sold out, so I don't know really why I'm mentioning it, except I was going to do it two years <laughs> just, ago. Just a tease, just a tease, just a listeners tease. who can't and it, come. And, and it's, a, it's a show where we explore her extraordinary story. Her, it's called I Remember It Well, and it's talking to her about her life. But we're going to do that two years ago. That was put on hold. My own tour was put on hold. Um, television could only be done by Zoom, etc. Uh, but I was lucky enough, because I write books, to be able to do that. 
So I like doing lots of different things is the answer. Is there anything that you've tried to do which you thought you'd be really good at and were disappointed to find that you either didn't like or, or, or weren't particularly good at? I don't think I've ever not liked anything because I think um, I'm lucky enough to be brought up with a positive approach, give everything a go. Yeah. I've not succeeded in certain things. Um, I mean, as a member of parliament, I was only there for five years. The people spoke, they got rid of me. Um, my, my, my line, I sometimes say, is at the end of five years, I knew I had contempt for my constituents, but it came as a bit of a shock to the system to find the feeling was entirely mutual. <laughs> uh, the truth is, I didn't have contempt for my constituents, and I do still go back to my old constituency, which is Chester, the city of Chester, because I'm the Chancellor of the University there. Um, but I didn't pursue my political career because I didn't want to be in opposition. And one of the things I discovered when I was in Parliament is that government is a thing. That's that's what's interesting, that's what's exciting, that's what's rewarding. And I knew my lot would be out for quite a while, so I didn't go back there. So that, in a sense, it was fascinating while I did it. I really loved doing it, but it came to an end. I don't think I'm any good as a businessman. I, I've had various... I mean, the, the reason I'm comfortably off is that I like work. I'm a busy bee in the sense I, I keep working. Uh, I say... I keep working because I need the money, because I've got three children and I've discovered over the years that money is the one thing keeping me in touch with them. But but the truth is, I keep working because I've found, as Noel Card once said, that work is more fun than fun, on the whole. And most of the things I do are fun, even though they're work. You know, yeah. I do a bit of radio, a bit of television, I write a book. Um, these are fun things to do. Um, I mean, it can't, it's not like real work. What you and I do, Matt, isn't work. No, exactly really right. Is. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, yeah, whenever anyone sort of complains, oh, you know, I'm tired. So we're not, we're not down the mines here. We are having, no. you know, it's, it could be long and tiring and all that, but it's fun and people, you know, we're bringing joy to people, hopefully, at least any, anyway, at least attempting to. It's a, it's about, a privilege, yeah. And so, because we keep coming, we keep drifting back to this period with your MP. 30 years ago this year, you became an MP. Gosh. 25 years ago this year, <laughs> you ceased to be. And it wasn't entirely your oh, fault, let's it, be no, honest. No, you're right. Let's blame my wife. My wife put our house in the constituency up for sale during the election campaign. <laughs> I mean, that did not help. <laughs> on every other house in the street, it said, vote Brandreth, vote Brandreth, vote Brandreth. On our house, it said, for sale. <laughs> now... The truth is, I was swept out on the yes, tide. in the 1997. I don't think whatever you did to the good people of Chester, I yeah. suspect that the, the, the political times uh, may have played a part in it as well. And it's worth remembering that, for example, in my part of the world, the Northwest, I was a, a whip, a government whip, which is the most fascinating thing to be. And I know you very kindly have, have read my diary of my time in the whip's office called Breaking the Code. Uh, it was fascinating. But I looked at the swing in that part of the world. And one of my fellow MPs from up there was a man called David Hunt, who is now Lord Hunt of the Wirral, who is one of the wisest and nicest guys in politics, a really shrewd operator, an excellent cabinet minister, and a really good person. Uh, the swing against him was exactly the same as the swing against somebody else in that part of the world, who I won't name, they're no longer alive, but who had drink problems, marital problems, financial problems, and could not keep their eye on the ball, let alone on the problems of their constituents. It seemed to make no difference that this fairly nice, was well-meaning MP, who was really past it and is now passed on, uh, got as much a swing against him yeah. as this superb MP in David Hunt. So there is no justice. I think they say that it, maybe it's a thousand or two votes in it is the personal vote. But if it's the tide is against you, the tide is against you. And I just wonder, because being a, an observer of this from the inside, um, you know, back then you, the, the prime minister had taken over from a, a female conservative prime minister. There were then lots of arguments about Europe uh, mired in sleaze uh, uh, after a long period in government. I wonder if you can see any similarities to what's going on in politics today. None whatsoever, uh, because the example you give is that it was John Major who took over from the female prime minister and when life was fraught and there was indeed a terrible recession looming. And yes. he then won the general election. But of course, I know. I mean, I know exactly what yes. you're saying. Um, and in a way, uh, of course, you know, uh, what is interesting is 
that there is a kind of cycle in politics and the ups and... I mean, if you are, as I am, fascinated by it and have been ever since I was a little boy. I mean, I, 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 mean, I remember... 1957. I remember the Suez Crisis. I remember the resignation of Anthony Eden. Um, I remember vividly the Profumo affair, uh, partly because my dad, and my my book, in a sense, is a book about my odd boy out. This is given Father's Day is on Sunday. Thinking about my dad, my my dad, among many other things, one of his he was a solicitor, and one of the people he was looking after um, was John Profumo. And John Profumo was a uh, Jack Profumo, the, ma- the man who caused the Profumo crisis. Yeah. That, uh, and some people th- say, you know, well, it certainly contributed to the downfall of the Macmillan government in 1963. So all that is very vivid to me. But I think one of the things that being older gives you is uh, a sense of perspective and that everybody is human, even the present politicians. I'm, I'm really thinking of my my father, who was a successful solicitor, but I now realised, and I hadn't realised it before, had money worries all his life. Not because, I mean, he was middle class and uh, had a good income, and yet spent slightly more each year than he was bringing in. Not a large amount. He wasn't extravagant. He smoked a great deal, which is why he died at the age of only 71. Um, But he spent a little bit too much money each year. And my abiding picture of him, and I often think of him, now, when I go to sleep, sitting uh, just... Because when I went to bed as a boy, I remember walking past the kitchen and seeing him sitting at the kitchen table with a mug of tea, smoking his cigarettes, with around him all the bills. And I now realise, which I didn't think I realised as a child, that he was trying to work out which bills to pay first. He was organising, trying to keep on top of his finances. And so I have such sympathy for people who have money worries. And I also... Uh, I, I, well, actually, I have sympathy with everybody because everybody has worries of one sort or another in their life, um, except possibly for me, because <laughs> I seem to be very blessed in so many ways. And just on the the, the, the current political state, when the Boris Johnson, I can't remember what, what the particular issue was, but a few months ago, he rallied Tory MPs round to try and oh, yeah. bring them together, boost morale. And who does he turn to to cheer up the troops? The the, the the forces sweetheart, Giles Brandreth comes and does a turn, and you were the one who got a standing ovation. That was quite... It was a memorable night, actually. And I, I learned something very interesting that evening. Yeah, you're right. To, to remind listeners who, who don't follow the small print on this, uh, a couple of months ago, the Prime Minister decided to have a, uh, a dinner in Westminster for all his government and all the MPs, and they were looking for an after-dinner speaker, and um, it fell to me to fulfil that role. And it was good, because I was seeing a lot of old friends again. Um, but what was very intriguing to me was to realise the problem that the government has had, and indeed the Labour Party has had for the last two years. MPs weren't there. And uh, they were literally working from home. They're, they were debating on Zoom. They were voting remotely. Now, if you read my diaries, if you've been a member of Parliament, you will know that in, when times are normal, the MPs are there all the time. And in my day, they were there really all the time. I was there when they still had all-night sittings. And as a whip, I'd be there at eight in the morning and they're still at midnight. I lived it. It was a village in which you lived. And you gathered around the watering holes, the tea room, the restaurants, the bars, and you knew one another. And you understood one another. And you knew where each other was coming from. And if you had a problem with any member of the government as a backbencher, all you had to do was wait till the voting and everyone went through the lobbies. And every vote takes 20 minutes or so. And you're in the lobby. You can go up. Any member of parliament can speak to any member of the government. If you don't like what Priti Patel is doing, you go up privately to her and you say in the lobby, look, this isn't going to work. I don't think this is why. Now, what happened for two years is the new intake from 2019, they didn't meet the ministers, and the ministers didn't meet the troops. And I discovered on that evening, my God, these are people who I like and who should be liking one another and would be liking one another, but many of them literally don't know one another. Yeah. And there were MPs that night were saying to me, oh, who's that over there? I think I know him, I've seen him, and they didn't know another. And actually the Labour Party will have had the same problem. Of, and and the, if, if Keir Starmer has faced challenges with people not really understanding what he's about or what he's trying to do and his troops, it's exactly the same thing. So I am extremely sympathetic to, to politicians and this working from home thing um, uh, just doesn't work uh, if you want to make uh, cabinet government and parliamentary government really work. The whole strength of our system 
and it is uniquely strong, is that you have constituency MPs who really do understand what's happening in their patch. All the parties are good at this. All the MPs I know do surgeries. They do actually meet the people. They know what's yeah. going on the ground. And then they can relay that to the government. And that has it's not been happening properly. It sounds like you think beyond, because people sort of say socially they don't know each other, but actually your point is that, that, that almost the... The job of government, the quality of decisions, the quality of policies will have been affected by not having those checks and balances. It's all it's much more subtle than people realise. It's not I mean, it's not somebody sort of sitting around thinking, I'm going to do this. We're going to solve this problem this way. It's actually people uh, influencing one another literally by by the mood, the tone of the voice, the raised eyebrow. It's it's that way of understanding people. And that's why I love being in the whip's office. The caricature is, you know, that you, if they're not voting your way, you lock them in the lavatory so they can't vote at all. Or you, you know, say you'll never get your knighthood if you don't vote with us. Well, I mean, that is that is crude and a caricature. What you have it, to do... Is it completely untrue? Oh, no, it's not untrue. It's not untrue. <laughs> in, in the sense, no, no, it's not untrue. It'd be disappointing if, um, you know, you and your wife aren't going to the Royal Garden Party this year. Uh, that sort of uh, yeah. thing has gone on in the past. But it's but the whole thing is really a matter of truly understanding what the person is about. Because if somebody, for example, if a backbench member of parliament has a drink problem or a financial problem or a relationship problem, that will impact on their thinking. And a sympathetic, an un, a thoughtful whip will understand that and will know what's going on. It's the That's what I loved about politics. It's a people business. And um, it's it's very difficult now. I mean, things that have changed in my day, not only Parliament sits for fewer hours, you're not so close, but the 24-hour news cycle has now become uh, truly oppressive. And any uh, divergence from the line, the party line, is um, jumped on. You're so, oh, 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 rebel, a rebel. Uh, and yet, on the other side, if everyone sends out the same tweet, oh, I see, they've all been given the toe of the party line. You cannot win. Um, so it's, I, I'm very sympathetic to politicians, and I think we're jolly lucky. I say this, I've got a daughter, um, Afra. Uh, I have two daughters and a son, and they're all incredibly brilliant people because we know who their mother is. Of that, we can be certain. And my daughter, Afra, uh, has been a parliamentary candidate. She stood at the last general election in a really hopeless seat against the leader of the Lib Dems, um, but is uh, you know uh, up for being a candidate again and has been a local politician and is a, a shrewd cookie. And I think to myself, my God, we need people of my daughter's generation, um, young, intelligent women yeah. like her to do it. Uh, and we mustn't make it such a grim life that none of them want to do it. If you'd been, if you had still been there in the in the that big committee room, the oak panelled uh, committee room uh, last week. Would you have voted that you had confidence in Boris Johnson? I am uh, always have been a team player. I mean, I, that, I just know yeah. that that's the way to win things, uh, not just in politics, but in, in life. Um, sometimes I, 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 well, I've written a book about the Duke of Edinburgh, the late Duke of Edinburgh, and who was uh, completely above really up, way above party politics. It didn't interest him at all or appeal to him. Um, but he was very into sport and games and the value of, of team play. And I learned from him that unless you play as a team, your team will not win. And uh, the truth is, um, you've got to play as a team and you've got to back the captain. So that would always be my instinct, come what may. And I'm somebody who has been, you know, was involved as a conservative when Sir Alec Doug I first stood as a school candidate. My wife says, "No development in your life, Charles. None whatsoever. You were stand at school when Sir Alec Douglas Hume was <laughs> Alec Douglas Hume. You stood up with a little blue rosette on. Bless your heart, you backed Sir Alec Douglas Hume, uh, and you know then you backed back Ted Heath. I mean, what was all that about? Then you backed Margaret Thatcher. I mean, make up your mind, man." Uh, and, I, and I did make up my mind each time. I, I was going to, as it were, have a, a straight bat, uh, be a positive thinker. I see the glass yeah. half full. Um, and that, that's the way it's been for me. Giles, we've already talked a bit about um, your, your social appetite for working and doing new things. You're, I don't, I'm sure you don't mind me saying so. You're 74. There aren't many 74-year-olds who are, who are launching. A, how many podcasts do you do? You obviously do the one with Susie Dent, which is hugely popular. I do. I'm very lucky. Uh, two things to say to you, Matt. 
One is um, that my wife has just passed me a note saying, I used to like Matt until he started banging on about your age. Two, uh, I was about to say, uh, Giles, remember, it's supposed to be a conversation. Uh, <laughs> let him speak occasionally. Um, <laughs> then I will let you speak. But you're right. I uh, have a podcast with Susie Dent. And it's, we've been so lucky because Susie is a genius. It's about words and language. It's called Something yeah. Rise with Purple. We've won the award, Best Entertainment Podcast. We've had literally tens of millions of downloads. It, it is, it's very successful. We've done 150 episodes. If you, want to, if you care about words and language and love language, tune into this podcast. Uh, but I've got a new podcast. And this is something, one of the most exciting and interesting things to have happened to me in my life. Uh, I, a few years ago, because I got involved in something called the Queen's Commonwealth Essay Prize, which is the oldest school's essay writing competition in the world, something started by Queen Victoria a long time oh, yeah. ago, even before my time. Yeah. Uh, it involves children from around the world sending in essays. It's been going for, you know, a hundred and more years. And I was involved in helping present the prizes and sort of being the MC at the, at the finale. And as a result of this, it's run by the Royal Commonwealth Society. They said to me, will you be an ambassador for the Royal Commonwealth Society? I said, well, of course. I mean, I like the idea of the Commonwealth. Of course I do. Yeah. And then I stopped and thought, actually, what do I know about the Commonwealth? <laughs> oh, you know, I know the Queen loves the Commonwealth. I don't even know what countries are in the Commonwealth. And when I suddenly overheard somebody saying, you know, there are, of course, European countries in the Commonwealth. I thought, European countries in the Commonwealth? Uh, and the, the Commonwealth is growing. I thought, well, what's all this about? So I made inquiries. And it turns out there are 54 countries in the Commonwealth, possibly 55 if the Gabon uh, now joins, because it's one of the countries that wants to join the Commonwealth. Countries yeah. with no connection with the old British Empire are wanting to join the Commonwealth. Countries like Mozambique, Rwanda, uh, the Gabon, joining the Commonwealth. And I discovered that, you know, the Commonwealth contains two and a half billion people, a third of the world's population. And I thought, oh, I want to visit the Commonwealth. And this was during lockdown. I thought, I'm never going to be able to get visit. I can't leave the country. I can't leave my home. Never mind visit the Commonwealth. So I thought, uh, I was having a chat with my daughter, Afra. Let's go on a virtual tour of the Commonwealth. So we have embarked on this tour of the Commonwealth. And we've called our podcast the Commonwealth Poetry Podcast. Because one of the things that is universal is poetry. I love poetry. I've always loved poetry. Silly poetry, short poetry, nonsense, deep poetry. Poetry I don't understand, like T.S. Eliot. Poetry I understand completely, like the limerick, there once was a man from Peru whose limerick stopped at line two. Every kind of poetry gives me pleasure. <laughs> so I thought this is a good way maybe to meet somebody from another country, a Commonwealth country, wherever it is, the Cameroon, Nigeria, Ghana, and say to them, tell me about the poetry of your childhood and find out when they first got into words and languages, usually through nursery rhymes and often through poetry. And then when you were older, what was the first love poems? You ever come across those? And in your country now, tell us about your country now, what it's like, what people learn at school there, and what you eat during the day. Uh, and then they choose one or two or three poems, either the ones they've written themselves, if they are poets themselves, or poetry from that country. And it's been a completely amazing... We've already recorded quite a few of them, but they're going to go out every fortnight over the next two years. And I needed to kick off somewhere. And I thought, well, the Royal Commonwealth Society, the Queen is the patron, and the vice-patron is Her Royal Highness the Duchess of Cornwall. And I thought, well, uh, why don't I ask her? Because I knew already, because she very kindly and generously supports another poetry project of mine called Poetry Together, where we get older people people in care homes often, and young people, school children, to learn a poem by heart, and then they get together around Poetry, National Poetry Day, and they have a tea party, a tea cake, and they do a poetry slam, the old people and the young people. Last year we had a, an old soldier in his 90s from the Chelsea pensioners, oh, yeah. and a boy of 13, and they recited a Siegfried Sassoon First World War poem together. It was so moving. Anyway, uh, she supported that in the past, so I thought, I know she loves poetry. So I asked her, and amazingly, she said, oh, yeah, you're doing this with your daughter, come round. And we turned up at Clarence House. She said, who's going to read the poems? And I said, well, I'm doing Celebrity Gogglebox with Joanna Lumley. She said, well, bring her along. So I thought, for Joanna, well, it'll make a change from Naked Attraction. Let's go along. <laughs> and uh, so I said to Joanna, uh, we're meeting uh, the Duchess of Cornwall at her home, apparently, in the garden room. Uh, we're invited, uh, you know, maybe even coffee and biscuits and a bit of poetry. 
So Joanna said, well, I'm up for that. So my daughter and I turned up. And um, there was the Duchess. And I thought, well, I thought, where are the minders? Where are the people? Where are the scriptwriters? Where are the advisors? And there were none. So we just sat there with a couple. I brought with me a couple of students from the University of Chester because I'm the Chancellor of the University yeah. of Chester. And this is a pro bono project. Nobody makes any money out of this. Nobody's being paid. Everyone is doing this for love. And because also it's a journey we're all going on. We're discovering these different Commonwealth countries. So anyway, they turned up with recording equipment. We sat down and there was the Duchess. And she she genuinely knows and loves poetry and she knows and loves the Commonwealth. And so we were talking about Commonwealth countries she's been to, what she's learned from them. And of course, it's quite unusual to spend 40 minutes with royalty um, just chatting. And that's what I think why people will enjoy listening to this Commonwealth Poetry Podcast is because it's so informal. It was more informal than we intended because she did say, as we got to the first poem, where's, where's Joanna? And I said, well, um, I'm just going to text you. Know, she's stuck on the bridge. And I said, she's not the Duchess of Cornwall or the Prince of Wales. She hasn't got police outriders. She's stuck on the bridge because uh, she lives south of the river. And, of course, they're north of the river. Um, anyway, so we thought, what are we going to do? So we, th- we decided we'd have to read the poem together, my daughter, um, myself, and the Duchess. So we begin to read this poem. I think it's a W.H. Auden poem, Nightmare. got a lovely rhythm to it. Uh, when the door bursts open and in comes Joanna Lumley. Now, Dame Joanna Lumley. <laughs> and we say, oh, thank God you're here. And we say, she sits down. So the four of us read the poem. And, and then the Duchess said, well, actually, isn't this interesting um, that we felt unconfident because we're not an actress like Joanna, the rest of us reading the poem, but doing it together, it was fun. And why don't we encourage people to share a poem, like a coffee morning. Yeah. And, and so that's... So we're now wanting people all over the Commonwealth to have poetry slams. We launched this Commonwealth Poetry Podcast last Sunday, and you can tell when you launch the podcast who's listening and where they're listening. 77 countries wow. have already downloaded this yeah. podcast. Nobody realises in this country, the UK, how powerful the Commonwealth is. Yeah. And how the soft power that... The Queen, the Platinum Queen, has given us over these years with her authority and her decency, her integrity, her staying power. That has been such an invaluable asset to us. Whether you're, you know, whether you're a royalist or a republican, you can't take that away. And so this is making an impact. And, of course, the one at Clarence House will be very different from the next one, which comes from Rwanda. A, a country in the news for very different reasons, but the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting is taking place next week in in Rwanda. Prince Charles is going with uh, the Duchess of Cornwall, of course. Uh, the first time, I think, someone from the royal family's uh, been there. Um, th- these are all ones you've recorded remotely, are they? You, you've not been able to make it to Rwanda yourself? No. Uh, I tell you, I want to go... I'd love to go to Rwanda, and I hope I, I, I hope I will one day get there. The country I'm most... I wanted to go to Mozambique. I wanted to discover in Mozambique why they wanted to join the Commonwealth. What's interesting about the Commonwealth is that it's these... The disparity between the size and and impact of the countries. Australia, huge country. Uh, India, vast country. And then you have uh, Tuvalu, small countries. It's something like 12,000 people. You have these uh, Pacific islands that may be Commonwealth countries that could disappear as the sea rises. And yet, at Chogham the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, all these people have equal standing. And that's why they love being part of it. It's an international organisation of independent, free countries. And they are... that It's like a family. And, I mean, it's a great privilege, in a sense, for us that the Queen is the head of the Commonwealth. And already we know that the Prince of Wales, uh, when eventually he succeeds the Queen, will be the next head of the Commonwealth. It, it is... It's fantastic. Um, so... It's it's and the idea of the podcast in the, future episodes we begin with a kind of just a minute where we try and encapsulate what the country is in a minute can hardly be done yeah. but you know main products etc so we hope um, school children and students will listen Good as well as people who the, love poetry of the yeah. place as well yeah yeah oh, it's a fascinating thing and 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 it's so, so well timed ahead of uh, ahead of Chogham um, happening next week before we um, before we finish up two thoughts occur to me why is it sitting in that room Duchess of Cornwall Dame Joanna Lumley. Given everything you've done, 
Why is it not Sir Giles Brandreth? Oh, don't, please, don't be embarrassing. <laughs> Move on. Move on. Uh, yeah, that's... Yes, and this next question... Well, the, campaign, the campaign starts here. We'll do that. Um, the final, final question. Having started with what, what is it you wanted to be when you were a young boy, now that you're a young man, um, what, what would you really like to have a go at that you haven't yet been able to try? Well, it's wonderful. Go into Mozambique. Can I say, I am, I think, the most blessed person in the world. I've got a bucket list. And on the bucket list, is, I've in, it's included many things over the years. I wanted to fly Concorde, the aeroplane Concorde. And I found myself on Concorde. Uh, and we were about to land in New York. And the pilot called me to the front of the plane and said, I, I've heard that you wanted to fly Concorde. Would you like to land Concorde in New York? Wow. So... I'm somebody who has been given so many blessings. Last year, I milked a cow for the first time. And wait for it, tomorrow, Saturday, I am at Royal Ascot wearing my proper bib and tucker and top hat. Of course. And I am presenting the trophy to the winner of the 325 race. I will be there in the Royal Enclosure presenting the cup to whoever wins the Hardwick Stakes at 325. I mean, you know, you name the dream, and I'm alive. And then on Sunday, I mean, when I was, it's beyond belief, when I was a little boy, the first time I saw Shakespeare play, it was Romeo and Juliet uh, at the Old Vic, 1960, directed by Franco Zeffirelli, the young John Stride as Romeo, and the very, very young Judy Dench as Juliet. And I sat there thinking, my dream is to be on stage with Judy Dench. That was in 1960. Well, there's hope for us all. Because here we are in 2022, and that dream for me comes true. So the answer to this is, wait long enough. And remember, <laughs> you began by asking me what my ambition was when I was a little boy, and I said, to be Prime Minister. Well, I'm several years younger than the President of the United States. Anything can happen. And if there's one thing we know about British politics and indeed your career, Giles, <laughs> it's that anything can happen. Uh, Giles Bradley, it's been so lovely to talk to you. Uh, we, it could have gone on and on. We should make it a regular feature. Giles, thank you so much for joining us on Times Radio. Great fun, Matt. And a reminder, the podcast is called the Commonwealth Poetry Podcast. And it's available. The Commonwealth Poetry Podcast is available wherever you get your podcast. And it's also, there's a website online and you can communicate with us and send in Commonwealth Poetry that you would like us to consider. So it's a, it's a two-way story, totally Pro bono. And that's a Latin phrase meaning for good. And we can keep Latin phrases in our language, in my view. I'm the person who for many years thought in loco parentis meant my dad's an engine driver. But then... <laughs> <laughs> On that uh, silly note, uh, Giles Madrid will leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from?